Great. Oh, that's good. Coming clear. Let me grab your attention again. Um, good morning. It's good to be here. As Dave mentioned earlier, we're continuing our series in the book of Ruth. And uh, we've kind of given it a subtitle, Boredism Belonging. And quite naturally, you'd think that this week we'd be looking at chapter two. However, we're going a bit off-piste, okay? So you can indulge me a little bit this morning, hopefully. Um, Let me explain a little bit, all right? So part of my role uh, with the senior leadership team is to oversee social justice. And one of the questions I constantly ask myself, uh, certainly in the past year particularly, is who are the voices in our community that we need to be listening to and supporting? And that's a question that I've, I've constantly asked myself this past year. And I guess it's one of those moments of convergence. A couple of months ago, I was thinking about Malini and Home for Good. And it was that same week that I received an email from David. And Malini had contacted him about Adoption Sunday. And we'd also just been planning for this series in Ruth. And it seemed God was nudging us. He was nudging us to think about this in a deeper way than we've done before. And you know, when God nudges, you bring your full attention to bear, definitely. So here we are today. If you didn't know, it is Adoption Sunday. And we've got Rosie with us this morning. Unfortunately, Melanie's not well, otherwise she would have been here. Um, So we're sorry that we can't hear from her, but our thoughts and our prayers are with her, Ian. Um, Hope she gets better soon. So I'm delighted we're going to hear from Rosie later, but before that, I just want to have a couple of reflections this morning, okay? One reflection on borders, and then a reflection focusing in on the book of Ruth. So what what do you think about when you think about borders? I think we can move quite quickly to the kind of negative connotations of borders, can't we? We can think about how they cause division. We can think about how they're designed to keep people out. However, this kind of polarized way of thinking about borders in terms of them being good or bad, um, or even just thinking, wouldn't the world be a better place if they didn't exist at all? I think that maybe isn't the most helpful way to look at them. Let me ask a different question, because when we think about borders, when we think about the history of borders, if we think about our own lives, we live in a world of borders and boundaries, don't we? Think about your own home, how your home's divided how your home's separated from the person next to you, or even about a park, the park fence that surrounds, even the very boundaries between our relationships, some good boundaries, maybe some not-so-good boundaries. <laughs> Borders and boundaries are very much a part of our world. They're in our midst. They always have been, and I think, I think they always will be. So perhaps a better question is, how do we go about crossing them? What does it look like to cross borders? You know, one of the places I think about when I think about borders, believe it or not, is North Canada. I think I've mentioned this before, but a few years ago, I got to spend some time with a community in Iqaluit, which is quite far up into Nunavut, which is the Northern Territory of Canada. And it was there that I got to be part of uh, an Anglican church and spend some time with the people and community there. And that part of the world is a very much a, a hotbed of intersecting cultures, language, and identity. 
you've got the Inuit indigenous people and then you've got the kind of Western English-speaking, French-speaking Canadians too. But I want to share a particular story about my time there. So I thought I'd just read it to you. It might be the best way to do it. So are you sitting comfortably? Yes? Yes? Okay, good. I was startled by the sound of footsteps lumbering up the ramp of the bookstore. I'd been engrossed in my book. The door was open, but only a head appeared through at first, as though that was the only part of his body allowed in. He smiled at me. I carefully put my book down so not to lose my place, and I greeted the man, while gesturing that the rest of his body was also welcome. I sat back down and left him to peruse the selection of books and other items. You see, this bookstore consists of one room, and that would rival any shed in size. Suffice to say, your personal space is being encroached upon when more than seven people are in the store. Not that I've ever seen seven people at one time. For a small store, it manages to contain a good number of items with variety. It is best described as a pokey yet cozy place to situate oneself. Within a few minutes, the man had purchased a book for his granddaughter along with a necklace. I picked up my book and returned to my sentence. Whack. I got him. I've been less engrossed in my book this time. One eye was firmly fixed upon an intruder set on tucking into some English blood. Mosquitoes are the silent predators of a calibre, and at this time of year, they are in their droves. After dispensing the crumpled mess into the bin, I returned to my book again. However, within a few short moments, an elderly Inuk lady walked through the door. She moved directly towards me. I could see she had a definite purpose in mind. Her whole manner, as well as her question, invoked an inspectant hope. In a softly spoken voice, she asked, do you have the Inuktitut Bible? In the last few months, the translation and first prints of the entire Bible into Inuktitut had been completed. I picked up the Inuktitut Bible that was sitting on a table in the center of the shop and I placed it into her hands. A huge smile appeared across her face as she looked at the Bible. She fixed her eyes on mine. And I could see there was beginning to feel a flood of emotion. The joy was almost tangible. She said, Nakomik, which means thank you. And it was as though I presented with her presented her a long-lost relative she thought she would never see in her lifetime. Within a few moments, she had paid for the Bible and in an almost hurriedly fashion walked out the door. I expect she was eager to return home, find a quiet spot, and begin reading. I returned to my book. Story over. It's a story that always sits with me as stories tend to do in our lives. You know, it's hard to believe, even today, there are people who are only just having the Bible translated into their own language. And as I reflect on that moment now, I consider the recent history of Inuit people, the people who, within a century, have been thrust from a hunter-gatherer society into a modern world, who have experienced huge injustices, the people who were relocated often under the guise of 
half-truths or no truth at all. And in this process, families were separated and divided. The people whose culture had been totally abused, people who had undergone personal abuses through the residential schools they attended, a people whose very identity had been threatened, continues to be threatened today. And yet, in spite of all this hardship, perhaps they are the most adaptive, creative, humble, and forgiving people you'll ever meet. Interestingly, following the development of the Inuit written language highlights perhaps the subtlety of the insidious attempt to cross over and assimilate their culture. You know, before the introduction of Western culture, the Inuit people did not have a written language, but rather they relied on an oral tr tradition. And in the late 18th century, Moravian missionaries introduced a writing form based on Roman characters, very much like our language. This was the first introduction of a written language for the Inuit. However, this was far from being a complete form, and in the centuries preceding, there was much change and debate. But in the mid-19th century, a new writing form was introduced based upon the Cree language, and it became known as the syllabic system. You'll probably see it behind me. It is one of the most fascinating languages you'll see. Um, it looks totally alien, doesn't it? Yeah, it's beautiful. This is the syllabic Bible that that lady picked up, the entire Bible in that form of writing. And the beauty of this system was that it was so simple. It could be mastered and literacy required within a few hours. Moreover, every person who mastered the system became a teacher of it and the use of the system spread rapidly. Interestingly, the Anglican Bishop of Rupert's Lamb wrote in 1849, a few of the Indians can read by means of these syllabic characters, but they had only, if only they'd been taught to read their own language in our letters, it would have been one step towards the acquisition of the English tongue. Thus the bishop saw literacy as a means to speed assimilation. Over the next several decades, changes and adaptations were made to syllabics, but there was always pressure to produce a Roman orthography. Bob Williamson, a professor of Northern Studies, summed up the issue in this way. Obviously, the syllabics in this era, when the Inuit feel their culture to be so deeply threatened, have assumed a symbolic significance overriding any considerations of efficiency. The syllabics are their own culturally distinctive form of writing and worth retaining for cultural identity reasons alone. I tell this story because history, sadly, is full of stories whereby crossing borders has been a truly violent and subjugated affair. A dominant narrative in the colonial West is one of dominance over the other, an attempt to assimilate a mentality and an assumption that the West is best. It is a story of identity and culture, race and ethnicity, class and economics, often in an attempt to distance ourselves from this history and move to a place of peace and equality. We do such harm and disservice to the other. Here's what I mean by that. A few years ago, I was listening to an interview on race, and it was in the wake of a recent shooting in the US of a black man by police. And this person being interviewed was a black individual who commented how a white colleague had said to him that he doesn't see color. It was an attempt to highlight that it did not racially discriminate. And his response to his colleague was this, you need to open your eyes. 
In other words, if history has any hope of not repeating itself, we need to begin by stepping into the stories and the shoes of the other, to hear the stories of oppression and hatred, to see their story through their eyes. Only then can there be true understanding, reconciliation and healing. Doesn't that sound familiar? When we think of the story of God and Jesus and what did he do? He stepped into our world. I wonder what we need to open our eyes to here in Northern Ireland. I wonder, in an attempt to move quickly to places of equality and peace, are there things we're not seeing or hearing? Second reflection. What might we learn from Ruth when considering the way in which we choose to cross borders? And I want us to think about adoption very quickly. Adoption is at the very heart of who God is, but what is the root of adoption? Often when we think about adoption, we consider it in the context of a child who's an orphan. Perhaps they've been deserted, perhaps through the loss of their parents, perhaps the separation isn't as clear cut as that, but they found themselves nonetheless alone. I think we live in a world of orphans, borderlands of abandonment, separation and deep loneliness. And people of all ages are in desperate need to be seen and fully known that someone might take the risk and cross over into their world and welcome them in. Definition of adoption is this, that it refers to the act by which an adult formally becomes the guardian of a child and incurs the rights and responsibilities of a parent. When you consider the root of the word adoption or what it is to adopt a person or even an idea for that matter, it's very much about choice. To fix one's mind and heart in a very definite direction. A choice to become responsible for someone. A choice to be in relationship with someone. Adoption in every sense of the word is really an act of faith and hope. Why? Because you're choosing to be vulnerable. You're choosing to open up your life to someone without knowing exactly what the future holds for that relationship. But it's a commitment to endure. Dave last week highlighted a particular Hebrew word in verse eight of Ruth one. It was chesed, which means loving kindness. And in the case, it is an act done towards the dead. The rabbis say this, is, this act is preparing of the burial shroud. The loving kindness towards Naomi, the living, is shown by not demanding compensation from her after the deaths of their husbands. But this wasn't just some random act of kindness from Ruth. As a result of the context of Naomi's situation, it's kindness born out of the choice to love. Very definite choice on Ruth's part. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, 7 says this, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love endures all things. To endure is to remain, to tarry behind, to abide, not to recede or flee, but to persevere. And this is where we find Ruth. If there was any verse in the Bible that could sum up the character and faith of Ruth, it would be this verse. And in a strange turn of events, although in one sense Ruth was adopted into the family of Naomi and Elimelech by marrying their son, there is this moment of choice to reaffirm their relationship for Ruth to adopt Naomi in a sense, a choice to become responsible for her, a choice to continue to be in relationship with her, a choice to bind herself to her, whatever the cost. It was a choice of love. 
as Ruth says, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. What a beautiful act of compassion and love that seems to defy all logic and sense. It was very much an act of faith, but very much motivated by love. And this is the story of God who chose to cross over into our world in the person of Jesus. It was a choice motivated by love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It was the way in which God chose to cross over into our world as well. It was a choice not of power or violence or assimilation, but one of humility, of vulnerability and servant heartness. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is Ephesians, which really speaks into this. Let me read it to you. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What a beautiful description, Ephesians 2, of how Jesus crossed over, an example to us of how we are to cross over. And even in his life, as he walked this earth, it was a choice to love through truly seeing and listening to the other. Love that sought and listened was the heartbeat of Jesus' daily life. The disciples see a bunch of noisy children and try to send them away. Jesus sees them and welcomes them in. The disciples see a crowd of hungry people and they try to send them away. Jesus sees them and he feeds them. The disciples see a woman of another culture and religion and ask Jesus to send her away. Jesus listens to her and meets her need. A crowd refuses to show common courtesy to a social outcast named Zacchaeus. Jesus sees him up in a tree and treats him with dignity and respect. A group of prestigious people at a formal banquet look at a disreputable woman with disdain. Jesus sees her as someone who has loved much and so must be forgiven much. In story after story and without single exception, we see that the driving motivation in Jesus' life is a choice to love, a love that sees and listens, a love that has no bound. There are many situations or contexts we could apply this to, but sometimes it's really good just to hone in on something specific as a community, and I think it would be really good. As I said, we were going to hear from two voices, but we've got Rosie, and that'll be fantastic. So I'm going to invite Rosie up, and as she's making her way up here, um, we've got a short video to show you, so you can watch that as we get ourselves set up, okay? There's no shortage of heartbreaking headlines when we look at the news of children in care across the UK. We hear of stories where children move more than nine times 
in their childhood. That means nine different carers. Or we hear of teenagers who are in bedsits or in B&Bs rather than in families. More than a third of children who are waiting for adoption are waiting more than 18 months. This can be really overwhelming. We can come away feeling, what difference can I make? Home for Good believes that we can make a difference, that each of us have a part to play. And when we read Isaiah 1, it talks about taking up the cause. And for us, that is the vulnerable child in the midst of the wider call for justice. I have the privilege of leading the work of Home for Good in Northern Ireland. I meet lots and lots of people who are taking up the cause and making a difference. Here are some of their stories. I suppose naturally I'm not really the most maternal person in the world and um, I kind of had a lot of doubts and fears as to say um, could I parent a child um, and a child that has maybe been um, traumatised as well. So there was a lot of doubts and I always thought that somebody else much better um, than me would be able to take up um, this cause but um, it was something that was really in my heart and I had to respond to it and for me um, that looked like respite foster care. As a champion, a Home for Good champion, um, I really want to see uh, our church catch a vision for this stuff. Uh, we really believe that uh, we have a role to equip uh, our folk in church in the world of fostering adoption. And the foundation course was really helpful for us. Um, it helped a small group of people explore these issues a bit more deeply, to look at the biblical foundation for fostering adoption. And we would love to see that grow and for this to become a church where more and more people feel comfortable talking about fostering adoption and people who are carers can come and find support and welcome. So when I was offered the opportunity to take part in the foundation course through church, I jumped at the chance to explore um, what it was that our part might be. So biblical foundation, really practical advice. We had a lot of people come and visit and share some of their stories and I find their insights really helpful. Caring for vulnerable children matters to us in Kirkpatrick Memorial because it matters to God. So in a church like ours, we're very keen to learn what God's heart is. And if we can discover God's heart, we want that to reshape our heart. We want to learn to care about the things that he cares about. And we believe that he really cares about vulnerable children. To find out more of how we can make a difference, how we can take up the cause, go to homeforgood.org.uk forward slash take up the course. We know that together we can make a difference. Thank you for the part that you're going to play to make that difference. Awesome. Perhaps, perhaps we could give it up for Rosie. Let's welcome her. <laughs> Should we dive right in? Yeah? <laughs> so... First question then, perhaps you could tell us about what is Home for Good, um, maybe what the story of Home for Good is and perhaps your role within Home for Good. Yeah, so Home for Good is a UK-wide charity um, and we are passionate about finding a home for every child who needs one. Um, you already heard just in that video um, already like a little foundation of that, but really um, our care system is facing a bit of a crisis in that there are so many children who need homes and just not enough families um, to look after them. And Home for Good believes that the church actually has the potential to be a massive part of the solution here. Um, actually, here in Northern Ireland, 
if, a, if one family in every single church took one child in, there would be no more waiting, um, waiting for a home here. So I think we see that as an incredible opportunity for the church to play their part. Um, yeah, so let me think the story a little bit. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably it, isn't it? Yeah. Um, my role there role. is... Um, well, Malini leads the work of Home for Good in Northern Ireland, and I help her, essentially. <laughs> so I just started working with them a little while ago um, in a kind of intern position. But yeah, that's what I'm up to. Cool. Yeah. Excellent. So why did you get involved? Why, why are you passionate about this? I think there are a number of things that have really fed into my passion for vulnerable children. And the first, um, feel a little bit like I'm preaching to the choir here after what we've heard from Dave and what you've shared there as well. But I just really believe that... Um, this is something that God cares about. Even in that video, Christoph said, um, adoption and fostering and caring for vulnerable children matters um, to their church because it matters to God. And um, there's so much language in the Bible that talks about God caring for those on the margins of our society. Um, and a lot of the time, vulnerable children are even specifically mentioned. So Psalm 68, I think it says um, that God is a father to the fatherless and that he sets the lonely in families. So I think for me, just on a personal level, the more, I, um, the more I learned about Jesus, the more I tried to follow Jesus, the more I was aware that actually um, this, is, this, is something, um, this is something that I need to care about. Um, and even more than that, um, as well as just sort of learning that this is who God is, there's really clear instructions in the Bible that actually this is something we should be getting involved in, not just caring about from a distance, but getting stuck in. Um, I think James 1 says, um, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And then of course the verse that our Adoption Sunday is based on this year, Isaiah 1, um, says, take up the cause of the fatherless. Um, and so for me, again, it all just sort of feeds into, well, if I'm following Jesus, then this is something I need to be getting stuck into. And I think too, um, as someone, again, like I'm part of an incredible community here at Redeemer of people who are passionate about justice and who understand that justice is a godly thing. Um, and something that really moved me as I explored how I fitted into that was um, I was really moved to see how intrinsically linked um, the care system is with other um, other issues that we would put under that social justice banner. Um, for example, I've got, I'm going to check my little piece of paper here for statistics to make sure I get it right. But um, yeah, in the UK, 25% of the homeless population have experience of the care system. Um, and nearly half of men in custody have experienced the care system. Um, and even I was chatting to a woman not too long ago who works to find homes um, for unaccompanied minors. And so we have children and young people here in Northern Ireland who have had to flee their homes to find safety here. And um, we have children and young people who have been trafficked here. And there are so many issues that come under that social justice bracket that actually um, we have a really incredible um, opportunity here to intervene at one of the earliest stages. Um, if we are able to provide care and security and safety for our society's most vulnerable um, when they're at their youngest, um, then we have the possibility to change the narrative um, for our society's most vulnerable. Not that it will wipe out homelessness or solve all these problems, but actually I think that for me is what I'm most passionate about is the opportunity to have children in this case that are in a situation that society would deem as hopeless and to be able to offer them the opportunity to grow into who God created them to be um, and to have the opportunity to thrive and flourish. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's brilliant. Um, one of the things we were talking about when, when we met was that the fact that we can have certain assumptions about a topic based on 
media or hearsay. Having worked with home for good for a few weeks, months maybe, um, what are some of the stereotypes you feel we need to be aware of and perhaps engage in seeing a change? Um, I think, when, so I, I read, I was thinking about this question and one of the first things I thought about was, well, yes, we can build assumptions on the media and on hearsay, but actually for a lot, like, for a a lot of the time we don't actually hear these stories at all, right? So this is a voice that's actually massively underrepresented. Um, I was trying to think of where in the media I ever heard a story of care growing up. And the only thing I could think of was Tracy Beaker, which is, you know, sugar-coated for children. And there are headlines that are negative in the news and there are bits and bobs that we pick up on. But actually, a lot of the time, this isn't even... This is stuff that we could massively be unaware of. So... Um, I think that it's probably important to know that this year alone, 40,000 children and young people will enter the care system in the UK, which is an astounding number. Um, and actually, just to put that into context, that translates to around 109 children and young people every single day, or one every 15 minutes. So I don't know, in the amount of time we've been sitting here in this church, you can already count the amount of children that will have been, been that will have come into care. Yeah. Um, so I think it's important to be aware of that, even in a Northern Ireland context, um, just numbers-wise, there's a need for at least 200 more families right now. Um, so I think that's actually, to start off with, before even looking at myths, that's the kind of thing that we need to be aware of. Um, when it comes to myths and things that people pick up, um, I think the biggest things people talk about are, um, I, I couldn't foster because, or I couldn't adopt because. Um, and so people say, um, oh no, I, I couldn't look after a child because I work full time. Or, oh no, I couldn't look after a child because I'm single. I couldn't look after a child because um, I have children of my own already. There are a lot of things that people believe exist that would prevent them from being in this position to look after a child. And really, um, all of those are myths because there's no cookie cutter mold um, for, uh, for caring for a child. The, the requirements are that you would be a good parent and a good carer um, and that you have somewhere for that child to sleep. And um, uh, after that, it's very much done on an individual basis. And that's not to say, I don't want to create my own myth here and say, everybody can do it, <laughs> everybody will be approved, because actually the reality is that it's a very vigorous, rigorous process for good reason, and that does often lead to some people being um, said no. So I don't want to add to um, the myths and the falseness here and say that everyone can do it. But I do believe that everybody has a part that they can play um, in that. Yeah, brilliant. So in the, in the video, um, Bellini highlights Isaiah 1 about taking up the cause. What does that actually look like? So he's talked a bit about not everyone maybe will adopt, but perhaps there is a part to play. So to take up the cause, the first thing I would say is consider if you might be able to think about fostering an adoption. Um, alongside those myths, um, I think it's, it's good to realize that there are lots of different kinds of care. And so um, if you work if you work a lot and are worried about not having the time, perhaps something like respite care could be appropriate for you where you take a child um, or, or a group of siblings um, for a short amount of time, maybe a weekend or a night um, on a regular basis to provide um, a break for the people that normally care for them. Um, 
there are lots of different kinds of foster care um, and adoption is another option. And so I would really encourage you as the first step of taking up the, co the cause to look into whether or not this is something you might be able to do. Um, I think that's quite a bold thing to ask, but actually, you know, we, we need more homes and Home for Good believe that um, the church is a really... Um, has, has the potential to be part of that. So do consider if that's something you can do. Um, saying that, I would be a massive hypocrite if I said that that's, that's what you can do because here I am, um, I'm 23 years old, I've just graduated and I've just moved back home with my parents. I'm in this job for a year and I don't know what's next. I don't, I'm not in a stable position to be able to take a child into my home and it would be wrong for me to say that everybody here should do that when I can't. Um, but, I think that there is a lot that people in situations like mine or totally different um, can do. Oh, it's not important. Um, so uh, one thing I think is actually we as a church family have a lot that we could do to become um, a welcoming and inclusive and safe, loving place for care-experienced um, people. Um, I, we have been part of a really cool project recently um, where we've been partnering with a theatre company who have been telling, um, they've been working in partnership with Voipic, which is Voices of Young People in Care. And they've, been, they've created a play that tells the story of what it's like to grow up in care. Um, and um, one of, there was one line in that play that really stuck up to me, which was, uh, um, oh, we joined. We, we we moved to a third family, um, and they took us to church, and we'd never been to church before. And I think, I mean, I grew up in the church, and so for me, a lot of the culture and etiquette and structure is normal. But I imagine that if you were to come into this for the first time, having had no experience, it could be an incredibly daunting, weird. Um, exclusive kind of place. And so I think actually the church has an incredible power here to either be somewhere um, that is excluding for a child like that or somewhere that welcomes them in with open arms. Um, and that's not just to be said for the church. Actually, if you're a teacher, you have a lot you could do. As someone that is in a child's life every single day, there's a lot you could do um, to um, be, a, be a positive, be a blessing in their lives. Similarly, youth work, kids work, doctors. There are, I think that one of the most important things is actually think about where in your life you encounter children and young people um, and think about how you, in the things that you do in the everyday can really um, be a blessing and a positive influence on them. Brilliant. Yeah. Last question. Yeah. What would you say to someone who's been thinking about adoption or fostering? but isn't sure where, where to begin the journey? Well, that's a good question to ask because <laughs> we are just about to launch um, a foundations course right here um, as part of our Redeemer um, community, which is really exciting. They spoke a lot about it on that video. Um, the foundations course is really um, for anybody who hears a little snippet at something like Adoption Sunday and thinks, oh, I would like to know a bit more about that. Um, it's a really great um, next step for people who are interested in learning more about fostering and adopting, um, but aren't ready to take the plunge um, and start start actually preparing for that in their lives, you know? So um, I think it's a really exciting opportunity. We're gonna start it on um, Thursday, the 14th of November. Is it on the, yep. Thursday, the 14th of November. It's a six week course, but we're gonna do it every other week. So three weeks before Christmas, we'll take a little break three weeks after. And I would really encourage people to come along to that, even if this is not something you've ever thought of before. Um, if today, the video and what we've shared about has in any way struck a chord with you. I would really encourage you to come along to this foundations course and learn a bit more. Um, yeah, it's going to be a really great thing. Brilliant. Let me give it up for Rosie. That was excellent. Thank you.
it's a real privilege, I think, to hear to hear about that, isn't it, this morning? Um, I'd encourage you just to to dwell on it this next week, to really think about it. As you say, it's it's not maybe just one particular direction in how you respond to it in terms of directly adopting. Maybe that is something you're considering. What I would say is stages of life. Maybe now isn't the right time, but maybe in the future something will be different. So please, I encourage you to think about it.